Welcome to Lessons for Life, where we seek to learn, love, and live the Word of God. Now, here is James Long Jr. Turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Daniel chapter 1. We begin a new series, um, Submission to the Divine Sovereignty. And and what we're going to see here is the book is entitled Daniel, um, but this book, at least the first six chapters that we're going to be looking at in this series, is primarily about the faithfulness of God, the sovereignty of God, his work in your life, in Daniel's life and his three friends' lives, is what we will see um, happening. I want you to think about the world that we live in today. Uh, the world that we live in today is, um, there are there's some significant problems. <laughs> um, the world that we live in today is a secular world. It has rejected God and moved him out of the central place in time. We not only live in a secular world, we live in a humanistic world. A world that has rejected God and replaced God with self, replaced God with us as human beings. We live in a secular world, we live in a humanistic world, we also live in a relativistic world. Actually, I guess it's now pluralistic. Relativistic was the fact that there is no absolute truth. No binding truth for all people in all times, but that's now moved into pluralism where all truth is equally valid. Secularism, humanism, relativism, pluralism, emotionalism. What has now been replaced, instead of the word being central and God being central in our lives, what now has been replaced is our emotions, our personal experience. What you feel deeply and how you experience, that becomes the center of reality. And now we lead a pragmatic time as well. The ends justify the means. I I sit with people day after day, week after week, and... I will say sometimes I will have people say that this is what they are going to do and I can bring them to God's word and say this is what God's word says and they say it doesn't matter, God will make it work in the end. The ends justify the means. And so when you think about that, we do have a problem in our society today because if we have rejected God, if we've replaced him, if we've rejected his word, if we've replaced it with emotions and experience, and we basically say, I will do whatever I want so I can get the end product that I want, it doesn't matter how I get there, that's a terrible society. The problem is, is that the culture today is not only out there, but I'm afraid that the culture has seeped into churches today. The churches and Christians don't look much different than the world at times. It doesn't look much different in the way the world thinks. Christians think like the world, speak like the world, act like the world. We become more and more like the world, and what The problem is, is this, if that's the case, there is no distinctiveness about Christianity any longer. There's no uniqueness about Christianity. There is nothing that will draw people out of the darkness 
to light because we're not giving them any light. Well, if you think that's new to our culture, let's be honest, it's the way it's always been. If you go right from Genesis all the way through, human culture has replaced God with self, replaced self and God's word with their own experience, and have done what they thought was wise in their own eyes. If you look, Genesis, humanity was doing this time after time. And then as you get to Exodus, God's people are in bondage in Israel. I'm sorry, in Egypt. And as God's people are in bondage in Egypt, they are crying out for a redeemer. And as they're crying out for a redeemer, they're saying, God, call somebody out. And they and God did. He brought Moses to them. He brought Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And he brought them out of Egypt, and he gave them a promised land. And God says, I will be your ruler, and I will be your king. But then they wanted to be like the world. So God then gave them judges, and these judges would do up and down things and the cycles that you would see where they would call out to God only after they were punished because they rebelled. And at the end of Judges, what do we have? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There's nothing new under the sun. And then what ended up happening was this. They wanted kings. And they wanted to be just like every other group that was around. I want a king desperately. So God gave them Saul. But Saul failed. Then he gave him great King David. And as great as David was, he failed in many ways. And then he gave him his son, Solomon. And his Solomon just got caught into idolatry and lust and things and He wrote some wonderful books of the Bible, but he was so godless at times in his life. And then if you look at the rest of the kings, the rest of the kings were horrific at times. And so what happened is that these 12 tribes now split. Ten tribes go to the north, two tribes go to the south. The ten tribes go to the north are destroyed in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in there and went against them. And now we have this small tribe, the two tribes down in the south, which we call Judah, that are now being invaded by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And that's where we get the book of Daniel from. So I I want you to think about this, that that one of the things that we are called to be is unique and different. Why we know about Daniel and his three friends is because they were unique and different, and they went against the culture that was there. That's the thing I want you to know. And they were great and heroic, but I want you to know the God that was behind Daniel, the God that was behind Hananiah, Meshach, um, uh, and Azariah. I want you to know the God that was behind each one of them. Because if you know the God that was behind them, you will know that they did not reject God. They did not replace God. They did not replace God's word in their life. They did not allow emotions or experience to dictate their truth. They did not practice the ends justify the means. They focused on the God that was there. And they were people of integrity because they knew who they were in identity. Those are two words I want you to think about a lot in this chapter. Your identity of who you are and the integrity of your life. So let's look here in Daniel chapter 1. It's in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, 
king of Judah, into his hands. I want you to hear these phrases. There are three times in this passage where it says, God gave, God gave, or the Lord gave. I want you to hear these. What's amazing here is this. In verse 2, you will see that God gave Jehoiakim, Judah, his people, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, this terrible king. And with some of the vessels in the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar and the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Aspenaz, the chief of eunuchs, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and some nobility, used without blemish and good in appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of food that they ate and the, and the wine that they drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, you probably know their three names. We'll talk about them in a second. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, today I pray that you would help us to learn how to honor you when our culture does not. I pray that you would help us to know that you are a God who is with us in the ups and downs and the trials of our lives. Father, this is a four young people, probably teenagers, that are standing against culture, standing against the tide that is going against you. And they stand firm because they know who they are and they know whose they are. I pray that you would help us to believe the same in our lives and help us to live for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you've got the secular culture, humanistic culture, relativistic culture. This is a crazy culture. I want you to see first in this section that God is doing a work to judge his people. And why is God judging his people? Because his people have gone into idolatry. The two idols that they primarily went after was sex and money. Does it sound familiar? No? (laughs) It does, right? We live in a culture full of sex and full of money. And that's the idols that people go after. And that's the idols that these people, his people, God's people, were going after. And so what God did was he had cried out to them right from Deuteronomy that if you continue to live in this way, if you go against my statutes, I will pour judgment upon you. I will pour curses upon you. But if you follow my path, I will pour blessings upon you. And God had warned them year after year after year, and they failed to trust in God. And then finally, God says that he gives his people into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So when you talked about that southern tribe, two two um, groups, and they are now going to be cast away. There are going to be three levels of this exile. So the first one is happening here in probably 605 B.C. And the second one is going to happen in 597 B.C., and the next one is going to happen in 586. You probably are familiar with the 586 if you're familiar with um, biblical history. So this is the first wave in all likelihood. So so Babylon is coming into Judah, and he's coming into Judah, and what he is going to do is Nebuchadnezzar is going to try to demoralize his people, these people of Judah, by doing two things. He's going to take the treasures from their temple, and he's going to take their teenagers from their families. 
So he's going to go into their churches. He's going to take the things, the replicas in the temple. He's going to take them out and he's going to take them back to his own God and his own temple. And what he's in essence saying is this. My country is greater than your country. My God is greater than your God. Well, isn't that what is happening today? That's exactly what is happening today. So Babylon comes in, and not only do they take the treasures of the temple, but then they take the teenagers from the town. I'm looking around, and there are teenagers here. I I, I want you to think about what would it be like if an army came in here today, came into your home, ripped your child away, took them hundreds of miles away. You won't see them again to a place where you will, they don't know the language. They don't know the customs. They are taken away and you can do nothing about it. That is what Daniel and his friends are going through. You know, we, we talk about um, slavery in the United States. You know, I have family members that were enslaved here in the United States taken from our homeland and brought here to this country, ripped apart, removed. We talk about the Jews and the Holocaust, removed, taken to a place they would not want to go. The trafficking that we have today, removed, taken to a place where you would not want to go. This, This is dramatic. And as you read it, I want you to think about these young people, these teenagers, the fear that they must have been under. The pain that they must have been under. Now when you take a group away, what you're trying to do is to probably terrorize them. Create some level of fear in them. And that's primarily what you will do. Now, in some of those things that I explained, what they were trying to do was to really terrorize them and put them under heavy, painful threats. But what Nebuchadnezzar does is something different. He doesn't threaten them in a certain way. Yes, he threatened them by removing them from their families. But what he does is he pours treasures upon them. Interesting. That that what Nebuchadnezzar saw was that the people of God had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, beaten and terribly treated. And what did they do? They bound together and they wanted to be a God and wanted to follow their God. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is this. I'm going to outsmart them. Because I am going to get them and I'm going to reprogram them. And he reprograms them in an interesting way. I want you to look here in verse 3. It says that the king commanded Aspenath, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal families and nobility. So these are, these are major people, major kids. So these are the people that you, kids from the major families. And what they're going to do is both the royal families and the nobility use without blemish, good-looking guys, good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding. So he is taking the best and the brightest from this group, and he is taking them away. But what is he going to do? He attempts to reprogram them in three steps. I want you to see these three steps. The first one is separation. He removes them. He relocates them. He takes them away from their family. He takes them hundreds of miles away to Babylon. He separates them. He removes them. He isolates them. Smart. Take them away from their culture. Take them away from their family. Take them away from their church. Take them away from all those places. Separate them. But there's a second thing he does. He indoctrinates them. 
What he does is he then, in verse 4, it says, understanding and competent to stand in the king's palace. And what he did was at the end of verse 4, there's a line here, it says, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. What he does is he he not only relocates them by separating them, he re-educates them. He trains them in the Babylonian language. He trains, trains them in the literature of the Babylonians. They get to go to the greatest boarding school that you can ever imagine. I don't know if any of you have ever been to boarding school. I haven't. I mean, there's some schools out by me where it's like $40,000 a year to send your kid to high school. I mean, I, I, mind-blowing to me. That's like college numbers, right? But some people send their kids to the greatest boarding schools because they want to train them. Well, you are getting an opportunity. You're not going to be threatened. I am going to give you the greatest education that Babylon can offer. The Babylonian language, the Babylonian literature, he re, in, he re-educates them, he indoctrinates them. What he wants to do is to get their mind. Because if he can get their mind, he believes that he can transform their hearts and their lives. So important. So he separates them by removing them. Then he indoctrinates them with re-educating them. And then he does a third thing. He, he tries to do some things to provide for them. Watch in verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of food that they ate and the wine that they drank, and they were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before God. So it's kind of like they're going to a boarding school for three years, and now they're going to be trained, and now what's going to happen is they're going to come back before the king, and the king is going to review them. Almost like standing before, you know, defending your dissertation or something like that. It's You're standing before this group, and now I'm going to be reviewed. So he didn't threaten them. He offered them promises. He treated them well. And what he is doing is he's trying to get their minds and their lives. And Daniel, verse 6, and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, were these the only four guys that were taken out of this group? No, they weren't. They weren't the only four guys. There were a ton of these, but there was something different about these four men, and there was something different about Daniel. Daniel is young. He's committed. He's courageous. Daniel is clear thinking. He is biblically saturated. He is uncompromising. Daniel says, you want to separate me from my family? You want to indoctrinate me by re-educating me? That's fine. They even gave him a new name. Look verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, which you will probably be familiar with, Shadrach. Mishael, he called, um, I'm sorry, Mishael, he called Meshach. And then Azariah, he called Abednego. We remember the, the three men's names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll hear about, about that as they go into a fiery furnace. So it's interesting that we remember them by their Babylonian names, not by their Hebrew names. But here, Daniel made a point twice in this chapter of telling you what their Hebrew names are. I want you to hear what their Hebrew names stand for. Their, their Hebrew names are so important. Because what it does is it tells us about their names. Daniel means that God is my judge. God is my judge. And so this is important to remember that he saw in his name the judgment of God, that God is judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Isn't that great? Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah is God is my helper. 
And so what they did was the Babylonians said, I'm going to relocate you by removing you from your family. I'm going to indoctrinate you by giving you a new um, information. And I'm going to rename you. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to validate you. I'm going to give you an identity. Isn't that big today? Identity. Well, that's exactly. I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to remake you. And so what they did was they took on the name. And the names that they gave them, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of those were about their God. So if the Hebrew names were about Israel's God, they gave them Babylonian names to get them to think about Babylonian gods. So Daniel put up with the separation. Daniel put up with the indoctrination. Daniel even put up with the validation of a new name. But Daniel could not put up with the next point. It says this, that Daniel, verse 8, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the king of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So important. But Daniel, this 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old young man, is standing against culture. He has been removed from his family. He's been removed from his church. He is now in a completely different land. And he says, I am not going any further. He draws a line. Why did Daniel draw a line here? I'm not completely sure. But Daniel says, I am not going to eat this food or drink this wine. It gets me wondering, what is the line for you? What is the line that you will not cross? I will go this far. I will go no further. Are you bold enough to stand against the tide, against your employer, against your leader, and say, I'm not going any further? Well, Daniel, this teenager, did this. Amazing to me. But Daniel says, I am not going any further because he was under great pressures, but he is holding to principles and promises that were holding him fast. The pressures of separation, the pressures of indoctrination, the pressures of a new name and assimilation. But he says, I am going no further. Why? Because he trusted in a God of grace. A God of grace that brought his people into judgment. A God of grace that would be there by providing his word. A God of grace that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He reminded himself of that God in the midst of the trials. You and I need to do the same. When Daniel is here, Daniel is focusing on his identity. Who am I? Who are you? We live in a world today where so many of us are being identified by certain things in our lives. Our sexuality, our race, our voting, our state, our political ideations. All of these things we start to identify with and we're missing the core of who we are. We are either believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or we're not. An identity here. Daniel knew who I was. Daniel says, I'm not going any further. Daniel not only knew his identity, but Daniel knew his integrity. He says, I know what I believe, and I am confident in that belief, and I am going to live according to that belief. His identity and his integrity were coming together. So important for us. He says, I'm not going to compromise. 
Daniel says, you can remove me, you can re-educate me, you can rename me, but you are not going to remake me. Who is remaking you today? He refused assimilation. He says, you give me a new place, new education, new language, new law, but you're not giving me a new life. Why the food? I don't know why the food. You know, the commentators are all over the place with it. Some believe it's because of the kosher laws, which it could be. It could be because some of those, the food was associated with idols of the time. It could be. It could be the wine. Uh, later on in some of the chapters, we're going to read that some of the vessels taken from the temple were going to be used in drunken orgies. Maybe it was that. I think it's just as simple as this. He saw food as substance. And he says, I, I believe that God is my ultimate provider. He's the one that makes me secure. He makes, he's the one that makes me significant. He is the one that ultimately satisfies me. I can trust God. You can take everything else. I am still trusting God. And the thing about Daniel for me is, is so important, which I hope is true for you, is this. He knew who he was, identity. He knew what his integrity was. He wanted to be exactly what he says he is and believe what he says. But there's the influence that Daniel has. Daniel has an influence on his three friends. Daniel has influence over the guards. Watch what it says here in verse. He says, he goes, I will not defile this. So then he goes into verse 9, and he says that he asked for their approval for him to be able to not defile himself. Daniel goes to the chief eunuch, and he says that I I fear that my Lord, the chief eunuch, says that if I give you this not eating this food, I fear that my Lord, the king, who assigned the food and your drink, why should you see you who are worse off in condition than the youth of your own age? So you would be in danger from the head of my king. What what Daniel says is this, I I want you to allow us not to eat this food. And the the leader says, no, I, I can't allow that because if I allow that and you guys end up worse, it's my head. But when he asked, it was kind of like uh, plausible deniability. So what what Daniel then does is he goes to the next leader. He says, I want you to put me to the test. Verse 10, he says, he goes then to the steward of whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let them be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and let their appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed, and you will deal with your servant well according to what you see. So Daniel now says this. He went to the major leader, and the major leader says, I don't think I can do this. Now he goes to the other leader, and the other leader says, well, and Daniel proposes this test. I'm trying you. I'm believing that my guy can take fruit and vegetables and make us strong. The amazing thing about Daniel, for me, is three things that come out. One, he was resolved. He had a conviction in his life. Do you? Second, he was resistant. He says, I'm not going across this line any longer. But the third thing, which we desperately need in our culture today, is he was respectful. He was resolved He was resistant, but he was respectful. If you watch Twitter today, 
And how Christians treat other Christians, it is deplorable. How Christians treat non-Christians is deplorable. You and I may differ politically, but we don't have to attack each other. We don't have to devalue one another. We don't have to demean one another. What Daniel does is this. He is he has his identity, he has his integrity, but he has influence because of his respectful way he acts. Hear that. He's polite. He wasn't trying to change the laws of the country. He wasn't trying to change Babylon's culture. He wasn't talking and demeaning them. He was saying, I don't want to defile myself. He wasn't demanding anything. He was asking politely. So important. He takes himself out of the equation and he says, I'm going to let God rule. We need to hear that today. So there were pressures that these men were under, and there were principles and promises that they followed. But then look at what God does in their lives. In verse 14, so the leader listened and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it's seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth that ate the king's food. So the steward took away the food and their wine that they drank and gave them vegetables. I think there's a Daniel diet around somewhere, right? Oops. Um... And the Daniel diet is you take this diet and you eat fruits and vegetables to do what? To lose weight, because that's what normally would happen. What was miraculous here is that this is a Daniel diet, but it's more importantly a God diet. I'm going to take fruits and vegetables. I'm going to make you look better than anybody else in this world. Because it's about a sovereign God who's at work here. God gave them into bondage and exile, but God is giving them favor in these people's eyes. So Daniel and his friends are reviewed. I want you to see what God does. God blesses them physically in verse 14. He gives them these vegetables and then God gives them a better appearance. I want you to see that God blesses them intellectually. Verse 17, it says this, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and all the wisdom. God blessed them spiritually. Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. God blessed them relationally. At the end of the time, verse 18, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among them, of all of them, none was found to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Was it because that these were incredible men? Yes, they were incredible men. But the reason why they were blessed physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally, was because of the God that was behind them. The God that they trusted in. The pressures that they had, but they held on to a person and his principles and his promises, and God blessed them. God gave them gifts that flourished. 
God gave them success. God says, he who honors me, I will honor. God blessed them with a powerful witness. God blessed them with a stand for the Lord. God blessed them in the ability to remain and retain their integrity. God blessed them with the ability to shine a light in the darkness. They were unique. They were different. That's what made them amazing because of the God that was behind them. They were faithful in very little, and God blessed them with much more. It's interesting that when you go through difficulties and trials, I wonder how do you tend to respond? How do I? See, if I were separated from my group, and if I were forced to be indoctrinated by another group, and if I were even validated by giving a new name, how would you respond? Some of us would respond with fear. Some of us would respond with anger and bitterness. See, we don't like it when things around us change. Some of us would respond with despair. Some of us would respond with guilt. What they responded with was resolve, resistance, and also respect. Because they knew their identity, they held to their integrity, and they had a powerful influence in life. They had pressures that came upon them. They had principles and promises that they held to. Finally, I want you to think about this. There was a path that they followed. Hopefully I'm not reading too far into this, but there was a path that these young men followed. It's the path that you and I need to follow as well. There's a vertical path and there's a horizontal path. We'll start with the vertical path. Their relationship with God. They remained in fellowship with God even when they were removed from their church. That in the midst of this foreign land, they continue to fellowship with their God and worship him. You don't need a building to worship God. You can worship God wherever you are. See, the problem is that what happens with young people at times is that they're removed from their culture, they're removed from their church, and they forget about the things that they've learned. Maybe it's partly because of our church's fault and leadership fault at times. But maybe it's just the fact that you've forgotten to fellowship with God. So when you go into that path and it takes you away, remember to fellowship with God. The second thing I see in this vertical path is that they were faithful to the word. They reminded themselves of the word. And I bet you they didn't even have their Bibles with them because their Bibles were probably taken away from them. The Bibles of their time were probably taken away. How did they remind themselves of truth? Because they had implanted that truth in their minds before. They had meditated on it, memorized it. They had studied it so that when they were taken to the foreign land, they were still faithful to the word of God. If your Bible is taken away today, would you have enough of the Bible to stand firm? They fellowship with God. They were faithful to the word, but then they found their security in God's salvation. And they found their identity and their union with God. See, they, they knew that this ultimate security, as it seems like the world around me is chaotic and confused, God, you are my security. God, you are my identity. I find my identity in you. The world may name me. I know who I am, and I know whose I am. There's a vertical path that I see them following, but there's a horizontal path as well. Because, see, it's not enough to be vertically connected with God through fellowship with him and faithful to his word and finding your security and your identity in him. There's got to be a horizontal relationship, and I see that with Daniel and his three friends. There's intimacy. There's a communion of believers. 
That even as you're taken away, Tim was praying for Ben earlier, that even as he is taken away from his family and from our church, we are praying that it will be a community of believers that will come around him and that he will form a level of intimacy with those people. When you go to college or away, I pray that you would find young people to come alongside you, a community of believers. Daniel did that. He had an influence in people's lives because he drew a community around him. But there was a second thing he did. Not only intimacy with the community, but the second one is instruction. Daniel got together and instructed other people, and they were instructing him. He was being taught by God's word, but he was also teaching other people the word. He was taking his friends, and he was sharing with them, here are the truths that you need to believe. The horizontal path is not only intimacy and community, not only instruction and being taught, but there's influence. Daniel influenced secular people, but Daniel also influenced his brothers, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So Daniel 1 begins, Daniel 1 1 begins in 605 BC. Daniel 121 is around um, five, I lost the date. It is at the end, 70 years later, and it's at the end of the Babylonian reign. What we find is this, that God takes Daniel from the beginning of the Babylonian reign to the end of it. He says this, that I am going to be faithful with you. I'm going to be faithful with you through Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to be faithful with you through Babylon. I'm going to even be faithful with you to come home to Cyrus. I'm going to be faithful to you. See, it is the sovereign God that is with them in the midst of the trials. So so let me bring this home. And so three things I want you to think about as we leave. One, know who you are. See, the reason why Daniel and his three friends could stand against the tide is because they knew who they were. Second, I want you to conduct yourself respectfully in this world. See, truth without love is not truth, and love without truth is not love. See, I cannot be loving of you and not tell you the truth, and I cannot be truthful with you without showing you love. I need to be able to do both. See, God is love, and God is truth, and he displayed that in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. And greater love hath no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So God is love and God is truth. And when we are conducting ourselves in a world, we should do it with love and truth. So know who you are. Respect others. But rest in the sovereignty of God. God is a God who will never leave you and never forsake you. He is a God who says that you may go through trials and troubles but I'm going to use all of those things for your good and my glory. Your, your good and my glory. I'll end with this last thing. Let's go back to the four names. Daniel meant what? God is my judge. Hananiah meant God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means God is my helper. Isn't that the gospel? Daniel, my judge, every single person in this room that is listening to me is under, are sinners. We're born into this world as sinners. 
And we are born into this world separated from God. And not only are we sinners by nature, but we sin every day in the way we think and the way we speak and the way we act. We glorify ourselves rather than glorifying God, and we are sinning against him day after day. And the reality is, is this, I don't know what the world tells you, but I know what the Bible tells us, that every single one of us will stand before God and he will judge us one day. It is appointed meant unto men once to die and after that the judgment. Daniel, God is my judge. So what am I going to do? How am I ever going to stand before God in a right standing? Because Hananiah, God is gracious. Before this world was ever created, God had planned to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue you. And not only rescue you with silver and gold, not that way, but with the precious blood of his son. He is so gracious to you that he sent his son to you to live the life you can never live and to die the death in your place. God is my judge and God is gracious leads to who is like God. See, all of the other religions in this world, you have to do something to appease that God. This is the only faith where the God of that faith has come down to rescue you. Who is like him? No one. I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, God is gracious. Mishael, who is like God? And then Azariah, God is my helper. God doesn't only help you by bringing you salvation through regeneration, but God is also your helper every day of your Christian life. And no matter whether you go to South Carolina or wherever, God is with you. He will help you. He will protect you. Hear the gospel in their names. See the God of Daniel through this series and praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Would you pray with me? Father, the um, pressures that these young people were under are heavy. Father, sometimes we, we think that the pressures that our young people are under are greater than any other pressures that any other person has ever faced. And I don't know if that's the case, but they're similar in the fact that our young people are being threatened with being separated from their families. Maybe not dragged off to foreign lands, but separated in different ways, Father. Father, our young people are being threatened with indoctrination being told what the world says is true, challenging what we say Scripture says. The world also is trying to assimilate them by giving them a new name and then remaking them. And Father, sad to say, I don't think I mentioned in the sermon, 70% of youth between the ages of 18 to 23 leave Christian churches every day. Why? Why are 70% of young people growing up in Christian homes leaving? I think it's because they're seeing the pressures, but they're not holding to the principles and the promises. Ultimately, the person that is with them. Lord, I, I thank you for Daniel and his three friends. I thank you for their identity. I thank you for their integrity. And I thank you for their influence.
I thank you for the fact that they were resolved and resistant, but so respectful, Lord. I thank you for the fact that you did amazing things through them and remind us that you're the same God that can do things through us. Father, remind us of the vertical relationship with you, but remind us also of the horizontal relationship. We need each other. And Father, remind us of the gospel in their very names and help us to glory in your son. Father, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in your son, I pray today is the day that they would remind themselves of the fact that the God is gracious and God is their helper. I pray that they would hear that God is their judge and that they would be judged right in your sight because they trust in your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been Lessons for Life with James Long Jr. We hope you've been blessed. For more information, go to jameslongjr.org.